Welcome to Mind Love Premium, episode 62. Today's episode is all about conscious parenting. If you can realize that the kid needs to actually fire you in 18 years, right? That's the goal, that they should be able to fire you and make you irrelevant. Then you start working from now with his sense of self-leadership. You'd be like, no, he needs to master his own intuition, his own inner guidance system, his own leadership, and not rely on me at every step of the way and not fall apart with every failure. So that is going to take a lot of practice. So let me start on that now. I've only been a mom for a little over eight months now, and still parenting is by far the most transformational journey I've ever been on. I used to think that only overcoming trauma and hardship caused these types of transformations, or maybe a plant medicine journey, but that's a different category of adventure. I realized that regardless of what plants the seed for the transformation, it's always a choice. There are plenty of people who allow trauma to break them down and then they never consciously rebuild themselves, which is a key part in transformation, in my opinion at least. Do you ever think back to how you used to think when you were younger and kind of cringe at yourself? I was having one of those moments the other day. In my 20s, I remember feeling almost sorry for people who had children young. I would think, but there's so much of the world to explore, or there's so much of yourself to explore. You people must really be missing out. (laughs) Well, now that I have a baby, first of all, I would give up every opportunity, every adventure, everything for this little guy. So the idea of missing out was just ignorant. And I guess it's relative. Missing out comes from a mindset of lack anyways. And second of all, of all the work that I've done, including recovering from all of my traumas, I have never been as aware of or as motivated to fix all my shadows than I am right now, now that my baby is a witness and a mirror for it all. But I'm also realizing that just like we have a choice to begin to develop resilience in the face of adversity, we also have a choice when it comes to parenting. For some people, parenting isn't an opportunity for transformation at all. Without bringing some sort of intention to the experience, it can become an opportunity to just further activate our own neuroticism. We now have a whole other human that relies on us for survival and direction, and that can trigger our own ego and control issues without us even realizing it. There are obviously a lot of differences within generations of people, from my grandparents' generation to my mom's generation to mine. And we can likely infer that beliefs and styles around parenting led to different societal norms, which in a way altered the personality types of generations. For example, there was a time, especially in France from what I understand, that children were supposed to be seen and not heard. I would imagine that that could lead to a generation of children who didn't really feel like they had a voice. We can also see how parenting styles across cultures tend to create different personalities that best fit into that culture. Parenting styles can affect confidence, work ethic, how serious or outgoing a person is. Well, I'm not interested in how to raise a human that best fits into my society or that best conforms to my ideologies and expectations. 
What I'm more interested in is how this whole experience of creating life and giving selflessly and raising a sovereign being and helping him discover himself, I'm interested in what that experience will bring into the light. I think too often parents are so concerned with how they can influence or shape their children that they don't see how their children are shaping them. Shaping your child doesn't sound like a bad thing, and I'm not saying that it always is, but there's a balance because shaping can look like control. This approach can create expectations, and if your child doesn't live up to your expectations, which is really just your own imagination of how you think they should be, then you feel disappointed and your child feels that. What if you looked at being a parent as discovering and nurturing a life rather than shaping it? In a way, this brings a mindset of love and acceptance to your role as a parent. And just as is true with any form of growth, it starts with acceptance of what is. And from there, you choose how to react. You can resist and try to change who your child is, or you can support and nurture who your child is. The more we can relax into acceptance and being, the more freedom we have to recognize our children's potential to spark a deep soul searching that could lead to our own transformation. So that's what we're exploring today, how to be a conscious parent. Our guest is Dr. Shafali Sabari. She believes that children serve as mirrors of their parents' forgotten selves. She received her doctorate in clinical psychology and specializes in the integration of Western psychology and Eastern philosophy. She's written five books, three of which are New York Times bestsellers, including her two landmark books, The Conscious Parent and The Awakened Family. So three key things we will learn are how our egos interfere with our parenting, how to release our children from our need for approval, and how to create a life that mirrors our child's being. But before we get started, I want to invite you to wake up to the morning mind love. Every weekday morning, you just get a little inspiration to set your tone for the day and give you something positive to focus on, kind of like a short note from your higher self. Plus, when you sign up, you get two free gifts, a beautiful 30-minute binaural meditation and 30 days of self-reflective journaling prompts to help you grow. And it's all completely free. So join over 9,000 people and go to mindlove.com to sign up. And now let's welcome Dr. Shafali to the show. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. So I have been reading several of your books recently because I am a new mom. And so I wanted to ask you, how did you get started in really applying spirituality to so many of the regular things that we do in life? Well, because meditation and the practice and the teachings of meditation are a very integral part of my personal life. And there's just no way... I can't see the world in any other way except through the lens of that spiritual practice. So it's quite natural that it would bleed into all my other stuff. Exactly. And I know you have a brand new book out, The Radical Awakening, but I am currently right in the middle of The Conscious Parent. And I wanted to ask, how do you think explaining it to somebody who hasn't really grasped the idea of what bringing consciousness to parenting means what does that aspect of consciousness do to change the way that we parent? It allows you to infuse the present moment with an awareness that whatever's happening right now with your child is not just happening because it's happening inside your child, but because of your upbringing, your emotional baggage that you're bringing to the present moment. 
So your goal then doesn't become just to focus on your child, but your goal becomes to focus on what's going on inside me that is creating this narrative and what's going on inside me that is creating my perception. I have already been thinking about this concept and my baby's only seven months old, but there's been so many times too where I'm a new mom. So a lot of this, the whole thing is new for me. But when my child is say having a tantrum or crying and I can't get him to stop, I'm realizing how much I need to focus on the energy that I'm carrying because if I'm letting his anxiousness make me more anxious, then it's just sort of this self-perpetuating cycle. And one of the things that you said that really was intriguing to me was this idea that there's a spiritual reason that we give birth to our children. Can you talk more about that? Well, the reason really is so that our children can wake us up. So the reason isn't because there was something in the past, life. We don't know any of that. But what we do know is that when our child comes to us, how we deal with that child is going to wake us up at some point or the other. So our children are our teachers that come here. They're our awakeners to wake us up to our own past, to our own patterns, as far and as deep as we are willing to look at those patterns. If we're not willing to look at those patterns, then what can we do? But if we are able to look at our patterns, then our children are our greatest spiritual teachers. Yeah, exactly. And and I find even when I got married, <laughs> just having another person in my presence was this source of so much awakening to my own patterns. Because I think when I was living alone, it was really fairly easy to not even acknowledge or recognize that I had certain patterns because there was nobody there to mirror them or to react to them. And so I would look at myself and I'm like, oh yeah, I'm pretty peaceful. I'm pretty Zen, but it's pretty easy to be Zen when there's nobody to talk to. <laughs> right. Exactly. So when you're not challenged, fatigued, nobody is asking for you 24 seven. It's very easy to practice mindfulness. The real challenge of mindfulness comes when you erupt in the moment because of all the demands on you and nothing better than to demand on you than an infant, right? Yeah. I have never felt more needed in my life. And in one hand, it's amazing. And then on the other hand, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. Yes. <laughs> and it's like, even with this little being who we interact with mostly energetically, because yes, I talk to him a lot, but he can't talk back to me. So it's more about being with this little guy. But I imagine, especially as he starts to develop autonomy and he starts to develop his own little ego, I imagine how our egos are going to interact and how that's going to be this extra challenge. I even think back to the way I interacted with my own mom and how much both of our egos came into play with that. I'm curious, how do you see egos interfering when it comes to parenting? All the time, because... The ego is the personality that the parent developed to survive their own childhood. And it blocks them from truly seeing who the child truly is. It happens all the time. And it's really hard to disentangle when that happens because you, the, the ego is so familiar to us that we believe that the ego is us. It's really hard to realize Oh my goodness, this is just 
my survival. So for example, if you grew up being a super achiever, because that's how you got your validation when you were young, you develop this egoic personality of achieving. Now, if you're not aware of it, or if you're not connected to it, then you will superimpose this super achiever personality on your children and expect them to meet your standards. And you won't even realize that you are doing that. That is how the super achiever messes with your ability to truly connect to your children as your children are. How do we release our children from that need for approval from our own egos? Only when we release our own ego around that and are willing to become aware of our need for our children to listen to us and that we need to approve of them and all the things that we were raised with. Only when we're willing to look at that, only then when it shows up in the present moment, your kid comes to you with a C grade and you're freaking out and you're not even aware. It takes a lot of guts to be aware to then say, okay, this is my ego. I'm bringing it into the present moment and I need to see this so that I don't plague my child with this ego. So if our own egos were developed in order to survive our own childhoods, what is the goal with conscious parenting? What type of relationship are we trying to help our child develop with their own egos that might basically blossom a little bit more gracefully than the egos we're all dealing with? (laughs) Yeah, great question. So we are trying to not impose our ego on our children so that they can evolve as naturally as possible. And of course, we will still mess up, but we want to, as much as possible, listen to them and allow them to tune into who it is they are rather than impose our ideas, our expectations, our fantasies onto the kid, right? So we give them a chance to find who it is they are. So when we are helping our child with this, when does it start? Are we looking for different ways to interact with them that might not be the same as our default all the way from infancy? Or does it start when they're a toddler and they're able to interact in a more (laughs) real human type of way? Yeah, it started already. But of course, it's more and more as they become toddlers. But even when they're infants, if we are highly anxious or stressed out, we won't be able to tune into them with the presence and connection that they need. So it starts from very young. And the more the work the parent does on themselves to declutter their mind, to take the space, to not go nuts, then they'll be able to calmly handle their children versus if they're all stressed out, always upset, distracted, right? The children begin to sense that attunement from a young age. So we're almost modeling for them based on our own energy. Is that right? Yes. It's we're tuning to them, really. The word is the child feels seen. The child feels reassured that mommy's going to be there, that this person is a reliable human being. It's all being communicated through the gaze, through the energy, the presence of the parent. 
So what would you say are the biggest hindrances that get in the way with a parent's ability to attune to their child if they don't have experience with a more conscious way of parenting? Well, they could just be anxious. They could be distracted. They could be clueless. They're like, I didn't know I had to attune. I didn't know I had to sit there and be calm and be present. So then I just kind of neglect my kid. I'm going to the gym or I'm just leaving my kid with many caregivers and not realizing how important it is for the kid to have stability or consistency, right? So when the parent is unaware, they're just unaware and they don't even know they're unaware. That's really the most dangerous part of it is that they don't even know that they're really not present. Yeah. And that brings me to, do you find this idea of creating sort of a stable foundation for a child? How do you balance that with also giving them experience with different caregivers? A lot of books I've read have mentioned like, oh, the daycare babies will end up becoming a totally different type of baby than maybe somebody with a stay-at-home mom. But are there benefits to that experience? And where's the balance? think there's no perfect balance. There's no such thing. So we can let go of balance. But yeah, if a kid is consistently with inconsistent people, that is definitely going to be more of a problem than the kids who are with a consistent parent. But if they're with the consistent parent is absent, then it's better to be with somebody. It doesn't matter. It's who they're with while they're with that person. That is really what's more important. Who are they with? And what is the quality of that person that they're with? I feel as a new mom, as much as my husband is a great father, but there's still so much that falls on the shoulder of the mom. I'm the one who can feed him. I breastfeed and I'm the one who puts him to bed most of the time. And and so from a spiritual sense, what would you say is reliant on that particular role of a mother or as mothers, how can we show up the best that we can in order to... Yeah, mothers are just amazing. And mothers can do things because they have a natural attunement as mothers and their oxytocin and that biological bond, which is just phenomenal. I'm sorry, but a guy can try, (laughs) but the kid kind of knows who the mom is. And it's something very special that the mother is. And It's nothing anti-feminist to say that the mother fulfills a very particular role. So I love the mother. I think the mother is really special and the mother needs to be exalted and the mother needs to learn that she can take great pride in her capacity to, to be the one to give the child what the child really needs. The child really needs something that only the mother can give in a way. So I am a very empathic person. And in all of my relationships, I have this urge to fix. And this is something that I've been working on (laughs) for years because it's like somebody might be going through some hardship, but I can feel their turmoil. And so I want to fix it so I don't have to feel that way sometimes. And I can already feel that coming up, bubbling to the surface with my child. And I anticipate that becoming even more difficult as they age, as he's able to walk around, (laughs) hurt himself in other ways, get his heart broken for the first time. And I know it's going to be a slight struggle to not try to basically pave the way for him or to help him skip some of those mistakes. How do you resist that temptation to 
control and to let the child sort of lead the way and make those mistakes on his own. Yeah, it's really hard for people who are saviors and fixers and controllers. It's so great that you're aware of it. So if you can realize that the kid needs to actually fire you in 18 years, right? (laughs) That's the goal that they should be able to fire you and make you irrelevant. Then you start working from now with his sense of self-leadership. You'd be like, no, he needs to master his own intuition, his own inner guidance system, his own leadership, and not rely on me at every step of the way and not fall apart with every failure. So that is going to take a lot of practice. So let me start on that now. So if you have that in mind, then you won't keep busting in because every time you bust in, you're messing up the situation. Yeah. And it reminds me of what you say about parenting from wholeness instead of from our wounds. And that makes a lot of sense. And also I can see how, like we talked about before, when we have that reflection or other people kind of mirroring or bringing out parts of ourselves that we didn't even know were there, I imagine through parenting, we're also going to discover some of the wounds that we haven't healed yet. So how do we apply that parenting from wholeness if we're just rediscovering new wounds, if that makes sense? I know, right? Like, can we ever catch a break? The thing is this, we cannot be fully conscious. So forget that. The wounds will keep coming up. The real artistry is to know when that you are in a wounded place and how to become aware of it, be compassionate and go talk to a therapist about it, and then to not therefore project it on your kid. So it's not that you will not be triggered and that's what you need to avoid. It's that what will you do when you're triggered? Do you understand? I do. And when I'm triggered, if I, I know that for me personally, slowing down is the biggest part. Taking a deep breath, maybe being able to tell my child, mommy needs to take 10 deep breaths in the bathroom. And possibly that's modeling a behavior that my child could use. What have you found that's helpful in that aspect? Because I know it's easy to say when we're talking about it here in this Zen place, but when we are actually triggered, our prefrontal cortex goes offline and we're in an emotional brain too. (laughs) So what are some of your tricks for sort of taking that step back and what's best to model for that child in that moment? Yeah, I think there's nothing better than taking a pause, non-reaction, leaving the room, There is nothing to beat that so that you regret, you don't regret later all this stuff that you spew out on your children. I learned, I wasn't even as conscious as you when my kid was young. I had to really learn it fast on the job. But I learned through aversion. I realized that every time I lost my control, I had to deal with the worst aftermath of my guilt and of the kid going nuts for even longer than if I had just handled it beautifully. So I began to learn through aversion, like don't F this up. This is going to be worse in the payback. So once I got that in my psyche, I just stopped Fing up because I was like, I can't pay the price for this. So I did it through an unconscious way of just like, because I don't want the punishment, that's why I'm going to be conscious. But that works because you learn through the negative stuff happening. 
But other ways are just any way you can take a pause, take a pause, take a pause. One of the things that you said in The Awakened Family was that your reaction is your child's trigger. (laughs) And that was just an eye-opening moment for me because I started thinking, yeah, you're right. My triggers are a lot of my mom's old reactions. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So that's really scary, isn't it? But once we realize that and we stop dumping the anger on the kid, and that's why I say, ask yourself, what does this say about me? What does this say about me? And that's the way to not dump your stuff onto your kid. So when you're going through these sort of internal processes to help manage your external reactions, are you also sharing some of the things or the ways that you're working through this with your child? No, they don't need to know your inner process at all. You just have to show up in your most conscious self without dumping the process and mommy feels so bad and grandma was a lunatic. No, the kids don't need to know that. They just want to see the conscious outcome. So what if you make a mistake and you do react in a way that you wish you didn't? How do you then go back to your child and reconcile that in a way that they'll understand and that also might be a way to model for them? Yeah, it's hard. You're not always going to reconcile it right away. Sometimes the kid is too young and you're going to feel terribly guilty. So you just have to, when they're young, you can't explain much. So you just have to show up differently. If they're older and you can explain stuff, then you can say things like, you know, mommy lost her temper because she was really upset and tired and that's not okay. It's never okay to talk like that. It's never okay to be like that. So I hope you can understand that mommy understands that that's not okay. Depending on the age, you can contour the lingo. Right. So one of the things that you teach also is this idea of building a household on being. For the many listeners who probably haven't read your books like I have, what do you mean by that? Well, because childhood is so imbued and indoctrinated with so much doing that Kids are running on empty with schedules that are insane and overburdened by achievement and busyness. So when you think about the being state, you put that in the forefront instead of achievement and doing. And you break free from the prescription list that mandates that every minute has to be filled up and every moment has to be a teaching moment. Just allowing children to have the space to to just be. We don't have to learn something out of every playtime and we don't have to make a monument out of every art project. It can just be some paint on paper. It doesn't all have to amount to a product with an outcome, with a bow. Yeah, it's funny because I have a lot of new mom friends at the same time because apparently we all flock together when we have our first baby. (laughs) And it's just funny because a lot of my LA friends, they're already like, they're my baby's seven months old. So theirs are around that age. And they're already like looking into preschools because apparently you have to do that in the LA area. (laughs) And and a lot of them are, yeah. And a lot of them are academic space. Whereas a lot of the books I'm reading really do value that importance of just play. Like they'll learn the academics or they'll learn the lessons 
later on so much more easily. Whereas now the goal seems to be to create more of a container for them to just discover who they are on their own and for us to follow. Exactly. So knowing what you do, you try to find a preschool that's more aligned to you and don't fall into the madness that everyone else is falling to. You can create your own little part at home. There's no need for children to be pressured and sitting in a chair and a desk and being still and listening to the teacher at this young age. I mean, there's no need. So don't fall into the trap that just because everybody else is doing it, I should do it. You don't. You can make sure that you send your kid for play. And that's what's important for you. I can almost anticipate that being difficult to really balance that idea of teaching versus controlling a child. But it's also been said that children choose their parents for a reason, for specific areas of development. And so one of the things that I'm very interested in is obviously mindfulness and meditation. So while I don't want to push that on my child, I also know that that stillness may be good or beneficial for my child in dealing with their own reactivity and dealing with their own behavior. So how do you view stillness in a child's schedule? Is that something that is beneficial to teach a child? And if so, how do you teach them or encourage them to take a breath or to find a moment of stillness versus reacting immediately? Sure. It's of course helpful. It's just that we can't impose it on the child. We can't be like, okay, now we've been playing for three hours. Let's be still for two minutes. It's allowing the child to find its own rhythm and stillness is even more important. So as long as we don't become mandating and indoctrinate our kids with stillness now, we gave up the achievement for stillness. It then becomes another trap. So is there an age that you found is actually helpful of teaching a child something like a form of meditation that is actually doable for a child? Or is that, again, sort of jumping the gun? No, of course. You can always practice at bedtime and do a few minutes or make it fun. Or, you know, depending on the age and developmental stage, you can make it lighthearted and indirect or you can make it very direct. All depends on the creativity of the parent. But also, children are naturally in their bodies and naturally connected. So as long as we can keep them that way, we don't even have to worry that much. So we've talked about mirroring our child or or really discovering, allowing our child to discover who they are and then mirroring that or supporting that in a way. How do we create that support when we start to discover who our child is or create a life that mirrors who they are? Once you discover their inherent disposition and their inherent temperament, you, as far as possible, you try to attune their external to their internal. So I remember when my kid was young, she didn't like competition. So even if the whole class was doing something competitive, that wasn't her nature. So I couldn't push that activity or she preferred more one-on-one things or she preferred hip hop to ballet. So as you see their temperament blossom, you can choose things on the external that more align with their inherent temperament than not, right? You can step-by-step kind. That's why it's so important to not do any of this right away and just impose our stuff on our kids. 
without them leading the way a little bit. I see a lot of this requiring that deeper connection or what you call attunement to our children. But I know that a lot of times when the harder we try at something like that, like really try to connect, a lot of times it has the opposite effect. What are some of the biggest ways that we undermine our attempts to connect with our children? By neediness, by anxiety, by control. If we're just in our presence, that is connection. We think connection should be hugging and kissing and smothering and obedience and compliance, but that's just neediness and control. Or we think connection is that we should be talking to each other 16 hours a day. That's just neediness and control. So when you're just present and spacious and attuned to your kids, they'll come to you when they need to and they'll leave when they need to. And you can just be in alignment with that. So how do we handle their mistakes in a way that isn't imposing our own ego onto it? Right. We do just that. We let them make their mistakes and watch our own ego rising and try not to contaminate their learning curve with our our nervousness or our fears. So we create a space for our child to make mistakes and to learn on their own ways and redirecting. But how do we handle discipline in a way that's actually spiritually or developmentally beneficial for them? Right. It's a very tough balance between giving a lot of space, but also creating a containment. It's really a balancing act. I mean, every parent wants to know, how do you discipline your kid? And how do you connect to your kid? And you have to keep straddling between that desire for control and order and organization and the desire for free reign and exploration, spontaneity, creativity, and just beingness. And I think parents who are aware, parents who are willing to own that they've made mistakes, can more easily titrate that. There's no formula. Parents want a formula. If this happens, what do I need to do? And there is no formula. One of the biggest things that keeps coming up in a lot of these books on parenting is validating a child's emotions. And you talk about validating their being, which I had not heard in a book before. What is the difference between validating a child's behavior and validating their being? Yeah, the behavior is if a kid is throwing a tantrum and crying, their behavior is that they're throwing a tantrum and crying. Their being is what's going on underneath that behavior. Like what are their needs? What are they feeling? How can you support their being state and not pay so much attention to the behavioral state? That's the ability to attune to what's going on beneath the surface without focusing on the seduction of, oh my God, my kid is throwing his ball and kicking his legs. And often because our senses see what they see and we get beguiled by our senses, we don't realize that that is just the material or physical manifestation of something deeper. There's something going on within the kid and we need to tap and tap into and understand that. In The Awakened Family, you talk about basically moving from discipline to enlightened boundaries. What do enlightened boundaries look like? Well, let's see what discipline looks like and then what the enlightened boundaries will be the opposite. So discipline is heavily punitive. It's hierarchical. It's random. It's arbitrary. The parent just decides, I'm taking away your phone or you're not allowed to go out and see your friends. Or, and 
enlightened boundaries really emerge from the situation in a more enlightened way. So if the kid has a curfew, taking away his video game is not going to teach him why he missed his curfew. So teaching about curfew or when the kid misses his curfew, you're trying to teach order, organization, responsibility. So it's better to put in five alarms. And if the kid still doesn't do it, then the kid can create things that make sense to the situation rather than coming from punition and control and fear. That makes a lot of sense because it basically sets up the child to be able to fix this mistake on their own. One of the things that I keep learning is the more we think that by kind of controlling the child's behavior that it's going to create the child that we want or create the behaviors that we want. But so often it decreases the child's motivation to ever do that thing on their own because they know that mom or dad is always going to be there nagging at them regardless. And so it can't really fall through the cracks versus if you allow them to experience the mistake, to face the consequences, and then you kind of act as a consultant, you say, well, how can we make sure this doesn't happen again and sort of create the boundaries together, then that might be not only easier for them or it's a bigger teaching lesson because then they're able to take those skills on their own, whether it's next week or when they're an adult. Exactly. So the kid becomes dependent on the parent's constant intervention versus the kid realizing their own internal sense of decision-making and their own internal sense of finding their own balance between risk and reward, right? Or risk and punishment. So leaving the kid to that, to their own awareness is so important. So one of the chapters of The Awakened Family is also about judgment and empathy and kind of balancing the two. I am still at an age with my child where it's very difficult to ever be in a judgment zone, but I can see how that would change as he becomes a little person and is doing his own his own things and making his own mistakes from elementary school brain or whatever it is. How do you deal with judgment when it comes up? When you're working on your own internal process and you're like, okay, I feel judgment. This was a stupid thing that he just did. When you're sort of working on that, doing the inner work, what does that look like for you of diffusing that and moving into empathy? Yeah, great question. So when you truly understand your child and their developmental state. So when a teenager acts reckless, you can easily judge them. But if you understand their developmental nature and the way their brain develops, you'll have empathy for them. If a toddler takes a marker and marks all over your wall, yeah, you want to judge them and scream. But if you understood the toddler brain and you understood that they're not meaning to be defiant, but they just don't have the capacity for self-regulation, then you feel compassionate. The key to eliminating judgment is compassion, empathy, understanding of the developmental stage. Where is the kid at? And if you more understand where the kid is at, you're going to judge them less because you understand the person, right? When you understand why the thief stole what they did, it increases your chances for empathy. That's what this is about, understanding your kid to the best of your ability. What kept coming up for me is my own anxiousness, which is just funny because I've never identified as being 
an anxious person or having anxiety until just the last few years. It's mostly from the time of pregnancy. And I'm like, oh, is this why so many moms are anxious? And one of the things that you say in your book is that anxiety is actually a form of doing, which we talked about before the difference of doing versus being. What do you mean by that when you say anxiety is a form of doing? Anxiety is really a state of mind where your thoughts are telling you, this is not okay, this is not okay, this is not okay, not okay. So it fuels a desire to control that anxious feeling or thought. And then you start doing something to fix the situation because your thoughts are saying, it's not okay, it's not okay, it's not okay. So anxiety equals control. Control is a state of doing and fixing and managing. So that's how anxiety leads to this obsessive doing. Again, so much of parenting just comes back to how we're being and noticing yes, these are our child's behaviors and that's its own thing, but how am I being in this moment? How am I responding? How am I reacting? And through that is basically our next level of spiritual growth. So thank you so much for everything that you've brought to this conversation and and for writing all of your amazing books. They've been so helpful for me already. And I'm only seven months into this whole motherhood thing. So for listeners that are interested in learning more about you, your previous books and your brand new book, A Radical Awakening, where's the best place for them to connect? They can just go to my website at drshafali.com and I have tons of courses on parenting and relationships so they can explore all of that under courses. All the links to this episode will be at mindlove.com slash x62. Your challenge for this week is to really focus on letting go of control when it comes to parenting. This can be really difficult. We get into habits of saying no, habits of giving directions in a certain way. But just for this week, I challenge you to see how much you can let go of. What happens if you let your child get a little messier than you usually let them get? What happens if you take more time to observe what your child is interested in and allow yourself to come up with creative ideas to support that interest? What happens if every day you ask yourself, what is this shedding light on? The moments that you're triggered or annoyed, the moments that you can feel yourself desiring a little more control, There are so many ways to use parenting as a prompt for self-exploration. So play around with it. Where do you feel guided towards? What do you feel curious about? Allow your mind to wander and see what opens up for you. For all of my premium members, I am so grateful for you. Thank you for being Mind Love's biggest supporters. I really, really appreciate it. And I love that you're a part of my community. For anyone else that is hoping to support Mind Love in one way or another, the best ways to do so are just by sharing the show, by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, or by joining Mind Love Premium at mindlove.com slash premium. And that is all for today. So thanks for giving your mind a little love today. And I'll see you next time.